It's Tuesday, October 2nd, and this is The Daily Dive. It's Nobel Prize time, and this year, the award for medicine goes to a pair of scientists for the work on cancer. The discoveries of Dr. James Allison and Dr. Tasuku Honjo led to new ways to treat cancer by targeting the body's immune system rather than cancerous tumors themselves. Peter Loftus, reporter for The Wall Street Journal, joins us to discuss the latest Nobel Prize winners and the impact of their work in the fight to cure cancer. Next, goodbye NAFTA, hello USMCA. The US, Canada, and Mexico have just agreed to update NAFTA after more than a year of intense negotiations. The deal has a new name, new rules for automakers, still doesn't take care of current steel and aluminum tariffs, and sets up the next battle with figuring out our trade disputes with China. Megan Casella, trade reporter for Politico, joins us for what's in the deal and the potential fight with Congress to get it all approved. Finally, it has been a whirlwind of news for Elon Musk and Tesla. The Securities and Exchange Commission sued Musk for tweets relating to taking Tesla private. Musk caved and now he has to pay $20 million, step down as chairman, and hire a lawyer to prove any tweets he sends out related to the company. Ben Jeeman, energy reporter at Axios, joins us for more on the Elon Musk roller coaster. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. What we did after realizing there were these brakes, we just think about temporarily suspending the brakes, not so much harnessing the immune system, but just unleashing it to attack whatever it was going to attack. We know objectively that we could, for 20-something percent of melanoma patients, basically cure them to the extent that they're going to be around for a decade. Joining us now is Peter Loftus, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. We're going to be talking about the Nobel Prize winners that just came out. These were, uh, it was awarded to an American and Japanese scientist for their work on cancer. A lot of people are crediting them with getting us that much closer to the elusive cure for cancer. Their work has kind of just paved the way for this. So there are two immunologists, one from Texas, one from Japan, James P. Allison and Tasuko Honjo. What do we know about them and about their work that they've been doing? Both of them have specialized in immunology, studying the body's immune system. This turned out to be a critical part of what they discovered. And to put it in context, if you think about the mainstays of cancer treatment over the years, things like chemotherapy and radiation, which were effective and are effective in certain situations, but they can also be blunt instruments in the sense that they can destroy healthy cells in the body along with cancer cells. And so that kind of, that causes all sorts of complications. Going back Back about 15-20 years, there was another advance in cancer treatment, and that was to target genetic mutations in cancer cells. Now, this immune-based approach is sort of the newest wave and one of the more significant approaches to treating cancer in a long time. These two scientists, working separately but in parallel, discovered features about the body's immune system that led them to figure out that if used certain kinds of drugs to target immune system cells in a certain way, it'll basically better equip the, the body's own immune system to go after and destroy cancer cells. So exactly how does it work? I was reading a lot about checkpoints and how a lot of this stuff lets T-cells basically attack the cancer cells. T-cells are a form of white blood cells, and this is where it, the magic really comes through in. I mean, what's so interesting about what they discovered was that the body's immune system has sort of its own natural checkpoints or breaks so that it doesn't go overboard and attack the healthy parts of the body. Cancer cells have basically figured out how to exploit that, and so they, in some way they sort of latch on to the breaks of the body's immune system in a 
way that helps them escape destruction. And so these drugs that have come out of the research from both scientists essentially take the brakes off of the body's own immune system to go after cancer cells in a way that they wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. Some of the drugs that have been able to be developed because of their research, I've seen these like uh, you know commercials for these on TV, uh, Keytruda and Opdivo. I think it was former President Jimmy Carter who said that he used Keytruda to treat his melanoma, and it worked out very well for him. I think a lot of people have become aware of them through those things, maybe hearing about Jimmy Carter, taking Keytruda, and yes, the TV commercials now are promoting the use of Optivo and Keytruda, I think primarily in lung cancer, because lung cancer is one of the more common types of cancers and, and one of the most deadly. These drugs have, have shown some promise. The research still obviously continues. They're finding out that these things help treat those things, but you know it's not a hundred percent success rate. So the next step is to find out why it works the way it does work, and then who would benefit most from it. There's also a cost thing. Some of these immunotherapies can cost upwards of a hundred grand per person. So that has to be figured out as well. But Dr. Hanjo himself has even said this is a work in progress. But he, you know, confident in his own work and progress of these treatments, says by the end of the century, cures could be found or, you know, just even more therapies can be developed to help out with this stuff. The studies have shown that as welcome as these drugs are and as much as they represent an advance, each drug alone, I think for the most part, only works in a minority of patients that receive it in these studies. What's striking to doctors about these drugs is that in that minority of patients, it can have a lasting effect. It can help people live, in some cases, for years. So the trick now is to try to better predict in which patients these drugs will work and by doing things like biopsying the tumors and then also studying different combinations of the drugs to see if like two or three of them together can do better than one alone. And as you mentioned, I mean, you mentioned the cost, that approach is going to compound the cost factor in the sense that you have, they're all, each drug alone is relatively expensive. And so combining them is going to be even more of a financial burden. These are effects that we're seeing that uh, from things that they've been doing for eight, eight years beyond that even, you know, longer than that, that they've been looking into this stuff. Specifically, Dr. Allison, the American, he has a very intimate relationship with cancer of Family members uh, had cancer. He had a bout with cancer. It's been around him for a long time. His mother died of lymphoma when he was a child, and he has he's lost other relatives. And as you mentioned, he's a survivor. And so I think his, his scientific drive, I think, is what he credits as the main as his main interest in this. But he also has said that seeing the older treatments that his relatives have gone through and some of the complications was sort of an added motivation for him to find something that might be better. Because these drugs, in addition to their efficacy, in some cases, their side effects aren't as dramatic as chemotherapy, for instance. It's not across the board that they do have some serious adverse events, but I think doctors are trying to learn to anticipate them better and try to mitigate them as much as possible. Peter Loftus, reporter for The Wall Street Journal, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. It's my great honor to announce that we have successfully completed negotiations on a brand new deal to terminate and replace NAFTA with an incredible new U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement called USMCA. Joining us now is Megan Casella, trade reporter for Politico. 
So after a year of pretty intense negotiations, the United States, Canada, and Mexico reached an agreement to update NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement. It's got a new name now. It doesn't go into effect right away. This still needs to be signed by all three countries, then Congress and their own legislatures need to confirm all this stuff. So what do we know about the new NAFTA agreement? What is it called? What's the new name? And then what's in it? So it's called the U.S.-Mexico-Canada Agreement, which has this very clunky vowel-deficient acronym, the USMCA. I guess the jury's still out on what (laughs) will ultimately end up calling this deal. There's a couple of things that mark pretty significant changes and compromises for the various countries. For one, Canada and Mexico are exempted from future tariffs that the U.S. might impose on global auto trade, which is a big thing for them because, as I'm sure you know, the U.S. is, the White House is considering moving forward with auto tariffs at this point. With Canada in particular, there were significant changes on dairy Canada agreed to open up its dairy market and to eliminate a certain pricing and classification system that U.S. farmers have long found to be an issue for them. And so that's a big win for U.S. farmers. There's changes to online shopping, which Canadians could soon import more goods, up to $150 or so worth of goods without paying customs duties. That was one of the issues that came down to the end. And there's different things involving dispute settlement in terms of how companies and and countries can sue each other if they're found to be in violation of the trade agreement. And with Mexico in particular, a big issue was autos. There's now a higher percentage of each car produced in North America has to have been sourced from within North America. So that's things like steel, aluminum, glass, plastic. The Trump administration was seeking and succeeded in increasing the level of what percentage of a car must be sourced from within North America in order to qualify for zero tariffs. A lot of people are signaling that as one of the big wins, especially the Detroit Big Three, uh, General Motors, Ford, Fiat, Chrysler, because the larger portion of those cars need to be made in North America, and they have a lot of factories you know, in Canada and Mexico. Another one of the big sticking points still, though, is steel. The agreement doesn't take away those tariffs on steel and aluminum right now. The U.S. is saying that this is going to be part of another agreement, something that we're still working on. That's something that came as a little bit of a shock and, and definitely a disappointment. For a lot of business groups and manufacturers and others in all three countries, Trump officials have been saying now for a while that they didn't want to negotiate the steel and aluminum tariffs as part of NAFTA. They wanted it to be worked out separately. I think that's partly because the Trump administration is going to face some political pushback from domestic steel producers who like the tariffs and who want them to remain in place. So it's going to be sort of an open question as to how that gets worked out because a number of business groups and and others are saying the details of NASA or the new NASA, whatever you want to call it, are sort of moot until we know what's happening with these tariffs because these are sort of the more pressing issue right now. One of the things that was interesting is the sunset clause and how this part works. They are going to review the agreement every six years and then decide if they want to go for the full 16 years. And then at that time, they can extend it for another 16 years. I think that's an important step. You know, you got to review these policies as the years go by because things change. Things change globally and, and markets change. So I think that's actually a pretty good thing that they threw in there. Certainly a lot of people are saying, you know, it's good to review the deal. Definitely. We like the idea of a regular review, but where the concern comes in as to whether that termination would be automatic after 16 years or whether it will require all three countries to do something in order for it not to terminate, because that's where some lawmakers are saying, you know, that's our issue. And that's what big business groups are saying as well. I think it was Senator Pat Toomey, who is a prominent Republican. That was one of the areas where he said he does have a concern because he's still looking at whether 
you know, it introduces uncertainty and whether it makes it more difficult for companies to invest lots of money if they think that there's a possibility the agreement after six years or whatever, or 16 years, depending on how you look at it, might no longer be in effect. This is not a done deal, as we said at the beginning. Uh, This still has to go through Congress. They have to agree with this. And this is where politics get into it. Who knows what's going to happen with the midterm elections? And if Democrats get control of the House, then it might be a tougher sell because this is going to have to be pushed until after the new Congress gets sworn in. It looks all but certain that this is going to be a 2019 issue with the new Congress. And so then it becomes a question of do Democrats control the House by what margin? Although just in general, the question of control is more interesting. But that means that there's a number of different things Democrats could do once in power. They could just resist the deal because they're resisting everything Trump does. They could try to leave their own mark on the deal, which might be a more likely scenario, or they could actually might work with Republicans and pass it. So it is interesting because it doesn't always follow along party lines. And so it's possible that if lawmakers decide this deal is good for their states and their districts, that they're going to approve it. The next step is going to be China and fixing all the trade disputes there. And this could even help there. You know, if these companies are now getting on board, it looks like the president is signaling, hey, I am open to making deals. It might open up a new pathways to to figure out all that other stuff that's going on with China. Megan Casella, trade reporter for Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Despite all of these unknowns and uncertainties, Musk's tweets and blog posts misled investors into believing that it was virtually certain that he could take Tesla private at a substantial premium over its then existing share price, subject only to the contingency of a shareholder vote. Joining us now is Ben Geeman, energy reporter with Axios. So let's talk about Elon Musk and Tesla. They went through kind of a whirlwind weekend. On Thursday, we found out the Security and Exchange Commission was going to sue him and try to take him out of Tesla, make him step down as CEO and whatnot. He was going to have to pay, I think it was $10 million at the time. He denied it. Then he changed his mind and said he was going to do it. What happened? What was all the crazy? about? Well, I think you just nicely captured how head-spinning the last few days have been. And yeah, it has been a lot of craziness. You know, what we're seeing now is some of the final tumult of something that really dates back to early August. If I can just wind things back really quickly, he sort of famously in, in kind of energy and auto circles now said over Twitter, apparently vetted by nobody essentially, right. that he was considering taking Tesla private at $420 a share. And that he had, most importantly, he said he had funding secured for the uh, what would be a very expensive transaction. Now, this sent uh, Tesla's stock price just soaring before trading was halted. And, you know, over the next few days, what we learned is that, yes, he had been in some, you know, perhaps fairly sophisticated discussions with Saudi Arabia's sovereign wealth fund about potentially bankrolling a deal. But he had, you know, it was not accurate, let's say, to say that funding was, quote, secured, which is which is a pretty strong statement. And he hadn't and even spoken to shareholders or anything like that at that point either. That's right. Even his even his board and, and colleagues were somewhat blindsided by this. Everybody was blindsided by this. And so, you know, that is what led to this SEC investigation because, you know, communications by corporate officers have some fairly strict guidelines attached to them, namely that you're not supposed to say things that are materially false or misleading because that can have obviously a huge effect on how investors interact with the company, what, how they do with their shares and so forth, and what the value of the company is. And so eventually this take private plan was scrapped about two weeks later. But the SEC had filed a suit on Thursday, a complaint against Musk on Thursday for making incorrect statements. And he said, look, I'm going to initially he said, I'm going to fight this. But then two days later, he settled. And so what we've seen over the past few days is that the stock price plummeted 
at the end of last week, and then almost elegantly, it's up by almost exactly the same amount. It's, today, it's back up about 17%. Right. They and, said he lost like millions of dollars over the weekend, and then today, with the, with the stock prices going back up, he recouped everything. That's right. Now, it's so what, crazy. the result of this SEC settlement is that he needs to personally pay a $20 million fine, and the company, in a separate but, of course, related settlement, also needs to pay a $20 million fine. But there's a few sort of important corporate governance things that are going on that could make this whole thing you know, honestly, on some level, a, a blessing in disguise for Tesla and Elon Musk, because what we've got is he does need to step down as chairman of the board for at least three years. And this is, I think, perhaps the most important. There's two very important other parts. One is that two new independent board members must be appointed, and his communications are going to have to be much more carefully vetted, including, of course, his tweeting. And I think that's just so important because Elon Musk is obviously a visionary tech pioneer. He's built the company that sells more electric cars than any other one. It's, of course, the one that people no. That said, his ability to have sort of self-inflicted wounds is really some, nothing short of remarkable. So I think what the settlement allows for is for Tesla to keep all of the advantages from having Elon Musk as CEO, namely his understanding, his ability, his smarts, his vision to create this company. But they're sort of at least putting some parameters or guardrails around some of the downsides <laughs> right. of, of Musk, which is his kind of erratic and unpredictable and unvetted behavior. A lot of people can't imagine Tesla running without Elon Musk. Like he is what people bank on. They trust him. As you said, he's a visionary and everything like that. People want to be in business with him. But there's no shortage of people that would buy Tesla out if something went crazy. A lot of people were saying he went through with this deal and, and agreed to pay the $20 million and stepped down his chair because if it would have drawn out a longer court process, it, it would have just been much worse for him, especially since it's all about the Model 3 and, and meeting production numbers for that. So that's why people are saying he, he just decided to bite the bullet on this one and take whatever they were throwing at him. I think that's right. You hit upon a couple of really important things. One is that whether or not it's, you know, he says it's not going to be this year, but look, at some point in the future, it's very likely that Tesla is going to need to return to capital markets to raise more money. Now, that would be a much more difficult thing to do if the cloud of this case was still hanging over the company and, you know, a cloud that would include the possibility of him being essentially jettisoned as CEO. So I think what this settlement allows for is to keep their options open for if and when they need to raise money from, from capital markets in the future. Now, in the much nearer term, what I think what everybody's eyes are on, and one of the reasons the stock price is back up today is not just the settlement, but... Tesla is going to very soon report how they did in the third quarter for their auto production and deliveries. Now, the tech website Electric got sort of an early, yeah. uh, got, got the goods on what seems to be going on. And while it looks like Tesla didn't quite hit this goal of producing 6,000 Model 3s per week at the end of the quarter, it looks like they're pretty darn close to hitting their target. So that, I think, is going to be a sigh of relief to a lot of people. Then we, in one month from now, they're going to report their third quarter financial results. Now, Musk has said the company is going to be profitable in the third and fourth quarter. Now, you know, what exactly that's going to mean, whether how profitable, no one knows. But I think those are the next big two sort of inflection points. It's going to be interesting to see what those numbers really do pan out to be. And then just going forward, seeing what the Securities Council, the guy whose job it is to vet all of Elon Musk's tweets before they go out, it's going to be a fun job in and of itself, I think. I mean, he's the one that's going to be, be. <laughs> keeping him from uh, imploding the company. But uh, yeah. oh, it's going to be interesting to see how this all pans out. Elon Musk continues to be one of the most interesting people of our time, and Tesla, one of the more exciting companies. Ben Geeman, energy reporter with Axios, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me on the program. I really enjoyed it. All right, that's it for today. 
Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive.